Uh, you can open up your Bibles overhead, Luke 19. <clears throat> In the scripture, Palm Sunday is known as the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. This is the last week of Christ's life on earth as the Son of God before he's crucified, resurrected, and raised from the dead to ascend into heaven. Luke 19, 28. When we get there, there we are, we'll read together. (coughs) Excuse me. And when he had said these things, that's Christ, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, He sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village in front of you where you are entering. You will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks of you, why are you untying it? You shall say this. The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it just as he has told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawn near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they have seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near, he saw the city. He wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon the other in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Let's pray. Father, help us to understand the time of visitation. Help us to understand this text that's 2,000 years old that speaks of Jesus Christ's triumphal entry into Jerusalem where they were praising and worshiping him one day only to say crucify him five days later. Lord, let us know how finicky the human heart really is, Father God, when it comes to religious matters. Help us to understand the reality of eternity, Father God, the reality of the last judgment, Father God, the reality of truly understanding who this man from Galilee really is, Father God. He is none other than God the Son. He deserves all praise, all honor, and all obedience. Help us to put our true faith in him today, Father God. Speak to our hearts in this text, God, and show us who we really are on the inside. In Jesus' name. <clears throat> Excuse me. As I struggle with some congestion. <clears throat> Triumphal entry. Historically, that's what's known here in our text today. It's Palm Sunday, Sunday and it's, it's a day of mixed emotions. we got a lot going on in just these few verses of scripture. But uh, it's a day that offered so much for so many, but only a few really noticed. There was genuine praise to God. 
There's genuine faith in Jesus as the Messiah, though they had a very small understanding of what that meant. But there was some in the crowd that really understood this. It was a time of prophetic expectation and fulfillment, and that might not mean much to you and me today, but if you were Jew 2,000 years ago, it meant everything. Your whole life consisted on prophetic Messiah expectations. They existed as a nation that was waiting for Messiah to come and rule not just the Jew, but all the nations in peace and in righteousness. It was a time of great hope. It was a time of great praise. But most unfortunately, it's also a time of genuine unbelief and rejection. And most of all, a time of missed opportunity, as Jesus says, you've missed the day of your visitation. Holidays can do this, you know that? Holidays are a time of mixed emotions. A lot is being said, a lot is being done, but really what's going on in the heart of the human being? And that's what Jesus is weeping about over here. And we'll get to that when we get to the text. Israel, the nation, has been waiting five centuries for her Messiah. It's been five centuries since the last prophet arose and spoke. And they've been waiting in this expectation to, for Messiah to come and usher in his kingdom the true king would come. He would usher in a kingdom of peace and of righteousness. And he would finally break the yoke of oppression that the Roman rule had on Jerusalem, had on the Jew. The Jew couldn't do nothing without the Roman eye of Caesar watching over them constantly. And, uh, and they're waiting, and they're waiting, and waiting. And now it's time to come. Oppression was going to be broken. They were going to turn their mourning into laughter, their sorrow into joy. Messiah has come. Israel will take their rightful place upon the nations of this earth. And the king would rule not just Israel, but the king would rule all the nations. Surely this has to be the Christ. He's he's raising the dead. He's healing the leper. He's opening the eyes of the blind. He's, He's raising up the paraplegic. He's forgiving people of their sins. Surely this has to be him. If he's not there, who could possibly fulfill what he's doing right now? Is he just a miracle worker? Is he truly the son of God? Is he truly the Israel's Messiah? Should they bow down to him now? And that's what's going on in this text here. The story we're going to see tonight is one that's been happening to some degree. To some degree. Ever since. Every Christian service has these dynamics taken place, everyone, for 2,000 years. There are those whose hearts are overwhelmed by the grace of God in Christ. They're in that crowd 2,000 years ago. There are others who are fickle in faith. They follow the protocol. They shout praise of Hosanna today, but a week later, the same people are going to be saying crucify him. They were talked into crucifying Jesus Christ by the religious leaders. Others who just follow the crowd and praise and worship, but they have no true faith of their own. They come not in the hope of personal salvation, but just religious curiosity. It's another holiday. That's what you do on holidays. That's what cultural Christians do. It's a holiday. You go. That's what you do. Nothing's changed. Still here today. No true faith. No true commitment. Just Overseas, Maybe Jesus will do another miracle for us today. And that's where they come. They're all in this crowd. Then there are true converts who love Christ. 
But when they stand before the hostile crowds like Peter did and the other disciples in five days, we're going to disperse because they said, aren't you one of their followers? And And they were afraid. They weren't filled with the Holy Spirit. They didn't understand all things yet. And it's the same thing today in the Christian service. Nothing's changed 2,000 years later. All those dynamics are happening in this room. Right here. In every church service, every true Christian church service, it could be uh, uh, Protestant, Roman Catholic, Greek Orthodox, makes no difference. These dynamics, there are genuine worshipers, and there are people who just show up. Just like this crowd right here. You never know what's going to happen. One day they're saying Jesus is Lord. And the next day they're saying uh, they're taking the Lord's name in vain. Or they're cursing Jesus. Or they're cursing the Bible. It could be a, a, a host of different things. But they're in the crowd. The context, what we just read, these 14 verses, have two parts. First, that Jesus has been preaching and performing miracles for nearly three years. He's got everybody's attention. You can rest assured. Many believed in him. But unfortunately, most did not. The religious leaders have always been a hindrance to his ministry. They're always challenging him. They're always questioning his authority. They're always putting doubts in people's minds. Now, according to the prophecy of Zechariah, he's coming into Jerusalem riding humbly on a donkey's fold. Understand something. That is what we call the prophetic calling card. What he is saying to Jerusalem, I am him. I am the one you've been waiting for. I'm the one Abraham spoke about. I'm the one Moses spoke about. I'm the one the prophet spoke about. I'm the one David prophesied about in the Psalms. I'm him. Make no doubt about it. To the Jew of 2,000 years ago, living in Jerusalem, they understood What was taking place here? That's why there was so much fanfare taking place. He's coming in under the the, the prophecy of Zechariah 9.9. And here he comes. Make no mistake about it. He's saying to them all, I am your king. Your humble king. This is the last chance for the religious leaders to acknowledge him as king. If we read Zechariah 9, it says this. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. He didn't come in with fanfare. He didn't come in as a conquering king like a Caesar. He didn't even come in on the donkey. It's a sign of humility that you, you chose the lesser animal. The donkey's fault. And here he comes. No fanfare. He knows exactly what's going on in everybody's heart. And this is his last week with them. They don't know it. But he has a destiny with the cross. This crowd of thousands, Jerusalem at the Passover would swell up sometimes to over a million people. Thousands upon thousands are in this crowd. The text doesn't bring that out. But this is a marching crowd. This is, there's a band going on here. This is alive. The scene is alive and it's electrifying. And they're welcoming him into the city and they think they're receiving him as the humble king. 
But a week later, they're going to drive the same person out of the city to Calvary as the Lamb of God to die for sinners. He's coming into Jerusalem at the Passover. As he says, the city that kills those who sent her to offer himself as the final Pascal Lamb. They look for a crown. They look for the cross. Behold, the end of all sacrifices are near. And this is a brand new beginning work of God for all humanity. It might have been a Jewish festival, but it was for all humanity. Well, you got to picture the scene here as I, as I try to, to reconstruct what was taking place. Bethany was probably about three miles or so outside of Jerusalem, below Jerusalem was mounted on this, it still is, of course, on this big hill, this big mountain. And Bethany is, guess where? Guess who was raised from the dead in Bethany? Lazarus. And not too long before this crowd, Lazarus was raised from the dead. And they're coming out of this town and they're going down the mountain, the steep hill, and rising up to Jerusalem. And the crowds are coming out of Jerusalem. They're, they're pouring out, worshiping and praising him. The miracle worker, surely this is the one they prophesied about. He's coming. He's, he's going to set us free. And, and the other side, you've got the whole town of Bethany coming. And guess who's leading the procession? The dead man who came back to life. Lazarus is in the front Picture this. They know this man was dead. He was dead for four days. And here comes Jesus out and the crowd is coming down from Jerusalem. The crowd is coming from Bethany. And they're meeting and they're coming into Jerusalem. They're singing the Messianic Psalms. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna is filling the air. Finally, peace on earth and glory to God in the highest. You can sense the sheer joy, the sheer hope. People are talking about it. Surely this has to be the king of Israel. Nobody could do what he has done. Then what's wrong with the picture? Sounds good to me. If we stopped right here, that's pretty good, right? Then why is Jesus crying? Why is he weeping over Jerusalem? He is the messianic hope. He is the fulfillment of scripture. He is the son of God. Verse 41 says this, And when Jesus drew near and he saw the city, he wept over it. There are many lessons here about life that I'm just going to spend a little time on today before a short sermon. There's many lessons about the life of faith that can be learned from our text. You see, Jesus sees the real heart of the matter. That's the most important thing. For the believer, that's a good thing. I want God to know what's going on inside me. You know why? I need help. In here and in here. But for the one who doesn't want Jesus or doesn't think Jesus, it's not good. From the people's position, all is good. Here he comes. Everybody's worshiping. Everybody's happy. They're basically saying, Jesus, don't cry. Stop crying. 
From the people's perspective, everything is good. But from God's perspective, it is not good. It is not good. Here we see the heart of God of the Old Testament. According to the prophet Ezekiel, we see the dichotomy of God. Let's listen to the prophet Ezekiel and uh, I'll just make a couple of comments. Starting in the 30th verse. Therefore, I will judge you, O house of Israel. Everyone according to his ways, says the Lord God. Repent and turn from all your transgressions. Lest iniquity be in your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions which you have committed against me. And get yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in death of anyone, says the Lord. So turn and live. Jesus weeps for unbelieving Israel. He does not delight in what's going to take place at the destruction of Jerusalem. He takes no delight in what's going to happen at the great judgment of God. He weeps for the souls of the unbeliever. He weeps for the soul of the man and the woman that says Jesus is Lord, but there's no place in their heart for true living faith. He weeps over that. He is not happy. Everyone else is happy, but Jesus, God the Son, is not happy. He really understands all the implications of what's taking place. We're so finicky, we're so superficial. We go to church, we're more concerned about what's for dinner. That's what's going on in this crowd. They're missing it. God has finally come and they're missing it. Jesus is weeping. He doesn't delight in death. But guess what? It's coming. That's why he's weeping. Judgment is real. Every true Christian and pastor knows this. I understand what that is. I understand when people say Jesus is Lord, but their life is nowhere near Jesus is Lord. I weep with Christ. Understand something about his weeping. It's not a passive tear. This is not like, oh, does someone have a napkin? This is wailing. He's going to awake. It's like when you lose an untimely loved one out of nowhere. You're distraught. Jesus loves the nation of Israel. Jesus is their God. He loves them. He has protected them. He has cherished them as the apple of his eye. He's weeping because they're rejecting the one who loves them. This is no passive tear. No, no, no. He sees the faith. He sees the pain of unbelief. He sees the pain and the end result of finicky faith. He cannot do anything but weep and wail. Verses 41 to 45, 44 teaches, he predicts the destruction of Jerusalem, which was going to happen in 40 years from that day. In AD 70, under the general Titus, Roman rule came in and leveled all of Jerusalem to the ground. 
and killed everybody. Man, woman, and child. So severe was this. Historians teach us they were killing themselves so they wouldn't get the Romans, wouldn't take them. They were jumping off cliffs by the thousands all together at one time. Josephus teaches us that. The historian. This is brutal. Jesus knows what happens at the end of false faith. This scenario has played out every Christian service since then. Every service should be an opportunity, a visitation by God. For salvation. This is Jesus coming. This is their visitation. He's coming riding in on a a donkey's foal. That's, That's the calling card. That was it. There was no other calling. That was the last prophecy. Every service should be an opportunity, a visitation for God for personal salvation. The message of eternal hope should always be in a Christian service. Along with a certain judgment that comes. That's why we believe. It should be either implicit or explicit in every service. There should be no ambiguity when it comes to eternal life. You and I don't become Christians because, well, I got nothing to do today. I'm going to become a Christian. Somewhere, somehow, you heard the message like I did. And I said, I have everything in this world. I was 30 years old, and me and my wife, we had everything. Looking from outside in. But when I heard the message, I realized... I have nothing. I'm one of the crowd who is saying, yeah. But my wife was saying, no. And then I heard what Jesus was all about. Hope. Mercy. Forgiveness. Hope. Peace. Mercy. Forgiveness. Hope. Peace. Mercy. Forgiveness, a second chance at life with God, a second chance to live for the Lord, a second chance to put God first in all my matters of life. And I said, that's what I need. As the gospel is explained through teaching and preaching, even the songs we sang today should have this dynamic of genuine personal hope in Christ. There's a principle of decision or judgment in regard to this text. Judgment is not a pleasant subject. But every book in the Bible has it. Unfortunately, not every sermon contains it anymore. It's not a pleasant subject. But this text teaches us something on how to approach it. I want everybody to listen. Jesus is given the truth with tears in his eyes and tears in his heart. He's not happy about judgment. I don't know why some Christians bounce around telling people they're going to hell on the judgment and they don't shed one tear for a soul. 
You're not qualified to speak on the judgment of God if you're not generally caring for human beings. If you're not caring for human beings and you're not living it and you're not showing it, even in the worst times of life, you're not qualified to talk about the judgment of God. Jesus Christ went day to day meeting the needs of all the people, those who wanted them and those who didn't want them. He still met their needs. He even washed the feet of Judas. A growing Christian should be sensitive to the lost and confused people around them. And never burn a bridge of relationship. We know the things that make for peace. I've shared this. I don't care where I am. When I go into a room, I'm going to bring something nobody else in that room has. And that's the answer to eternal life. Playing golf yesterday with the, we'll call them three friends of mine. They don't know the Lord. And uh, they know who I am. And one guy introduced me to a new guy and says, he's a minister. And I said, "Uh uh-oh, I'm never going to make it to heaven. (laughs) So I said, yeah, most likely you're not like this, but stick around. By the 18th hole, who knows what might happen? (laughs) So uh, he's a self-confessed scoundrel, but a lovable man. And so I put my arm around him on the 16th hole. I said, are you finally ready? I said, God chose me today, handpicked me to walk with you. And I noticed you're getting better because you just actually said a sentence without one cuss word in it. He was hysterical. But that's the way we do. We don't go out there. You got to walk with them. And you care for them. You can't be offended at a cuss word. You can't be offended at a nasty joke. You, you, gotta, you, don't, you don't affirm that kind of stuff. But you can't be sitting there judging people for it. you got to walk with them. Because that was me at one time. I didn't know. I was at church all the time, but I wasn't saved. Amen. I didn't know. I needed someone to talk to me and walk with me. And show me the right path. And God sent people into my wife's life and my life. To show me. There is a genuine Christianity. Our theology and our lives should be married one to the other. We're ambassadors of Christ. Do not take this lightly about this weeping. It's serious business. The reality of a certain judgment, whether for Jerusalem or the last judgment at God's throne should bring us to a very real compassion for other people. A genuine concern for people. When Jesus says, walk the extra mile, you remember that? Walk in the Beatitudes. If your enemy curses you, bless him. If he smacks you on the cheek, turn the other cheek. If he says, walk a mile, walk a mile. He didn't say it was going to be an easy mile. Half of the stuff I don't want to hear, but I, I walk the extra mile with people that don't know the Lord yet. The other half are smoking pot, and the thing that I'm going to judge them, I said, smoke all the pot you want. I don't care. I said, I got this bigger things to fry over here than what you're smoking and what you're drinking. Let God come into your life first. Let God forgive you first. Let God wash you and make it right with your soul. And guess what? He'll deal with the other peripheral stuff. Don't try to pluck up the peripheral stuff. You're doing this, you're doing that, you're doing this, you're doing that. Don't, don't. That's religion. That doesn't go anywhere. Live with them. Love them. Be concerned for them. Show them compassion. But also be ready to talk to them about the Lord. 
That's what Christ is doing. Compassion characterizes the believer's life. And if it's not, and if it's not, understand something. That's not an option to pass a play. Remember password? I'll pass on that. I'll play on that one. No, no, no. That means you're still immature in the faith. Compassion for those who don't know Christ is a sign of maturity. As a matter of fact, 1 John says it's being perfected in love. Verse 39 says this, And some of the Pharisees in the multitude said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. There's always a couple of people in the crowd that are trying to steal the air from Christ. You're loving Christ, you're worshiping Christ, you're reading your Bible, you're singing your songs, your hymns, you're listening to your Christian music, and there's always someone to say, I don't want that. Stop praising God. It's Jesus. Listen, and some of the Pharisees, you know what Pharisee really stands for? A self-righteous religious person. Okay? So some of the self-righteous religious Pharisees that were in the multitude, that were praising God, said, teach and rebuke the disciples. And what does Jesus say? If they don't worship me, the stones will cry out. Instead of enjoying Christ for themselves, they become a hindrance to other people. We've got to make sure we never become a hindrance. Dealing with a young man now in the gym. He goes to a church around the corner, a Greek Orthodox church. Great man, I know the man, I know the family. He wants to become a priest. So the father said, would you do me a favor, talk to my son. And I said, what do you want me to talk to him about? <laughs> he goes, well, you know how you guys do it over there. Oh, you mean we can get married and have a family and have fun? Is that what you're talking about? So I said, I'll talk to him. So he thought I was going to go tell him, don't do that. I'm not going to get in the way of God. If God's moving on someone's heart, I don't care if he's in the Catholic Church, he's in the Protestant Church, he's in the Greek Orthodox Church. Don't get in the way of God. If God wants I said, I have one concern for you. He said, what is it, Brian? I said, do you truly understand what it means to be born again? I said, when you die and you stand before Christ, is he going to accept you or reject you? He says, he shed his blood for me. I have nowhere else to go. That's all. My job's done. So now I encourage him in his walk with God. I encourage him in what God might be doing in his life. I'm not going to get in the way of it. Leave him alone. Maybe God wants him there. You know why? They need a man filled with the Spirit of God. They need a man that's going to lead him in the path of righteousness. We've got to make sure we're not like the Pharisees saying, no, you don't go to that bad church over there. No, 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 no. You can be saved and damned in any Christian church. As long as the message of salvation is there, you've got a chance to be saved. Now, I'm building a relationship with this young man. I don't know what God's going to do with him. But I'm in his corner. And if he has questions one day, he might come to me next. But in the interim, I'll meet him and God where they're at. Does that make sense? We've got to be careful of that. We've got to be careful of throwing the cold water on everybody else's party because they don't come to our church. Or they don't read the same Bible as us. Or they, they worship in a different style and it's, it's very dramatic and, and it's passionate. You know, it's like, don't quench anybody's worship of Christ. 
Some people worship in a demonstrous way and, and they got the tambourines. I love that. I got saved in a church like that. I had my tambourine. I had my, my uh, what did I have? My flag. I would run around with my flag. They told me, keep the flag, get rid of the tambourine because I was ruining everybody's worship. I had the chauffeur. I blew the horn. I still have that. I'll break that out one day. But some people like to worship God in just a reflective mind. Very, very, uh, very personal, very deep. Uh, just thinking about the Lord, reflecting a lot on what Christ has done for them. And they're not the mantras. They're just very quiet. But that's their worship of God. Don't get in the way of it. Leave him alone. God's in full control of everything Christian. He's in full control of everything not Christian. He's in full control of everything demonic. God is in control. Get along with the Lord. Christian life is a lot easier when you know God's in in control of everything. Amen? Yes. And last, he says this in verse 40. I tell you, if these were silent, he's telling the religious leaders, the very stones would cry out. In God's eyes, it's an injustice for a person not to believe in Christ. I can tell you that right now. It's actually sin. It's also an injustice and sin to believe in Christ and not speak up for him. Remember what Jesus says? If you don't confess me in front of men, I won't confess you in front of my holy angels. Think about that. See what's going on in America today? Trying to silence any Christian witness at all. From the school systems, higher education, lower education, corporate America, secular America, even Christian America. When 9-11 hit, I was offered to go down to uh, 9-11 and pray for people, you know, and go down and, and witness and, you know, and comfort people at a time, of, a, a terrible time. The Red Cross told us this, do not witness to anybody about Jesus Christ. Thank goodness we didn't listen. You don't tell a Christian to ever do that. We met the needs of people. And we also gave them the only hope there was. And that's in Christ. Especially at a crisis time like that. But we live in a time now that Christians can't be silent. It is time to make a stand. To stand up. Because God will raise up other people. Don't worry. God is never shy for his people. He can make noise with five people. He doesn't need 500,000 or 5 million. He can make a lot of noise with a few people. We have to stand up. Be accounted for. And whether they throw rocks at us and shout at us. Guess what? It's a joy to serve Christ in such a way. There's a couple more points. I'm going to pass on them for now, though. And I just want to encourage us all. Let not the time of visitation pass you by. The Holy Spirit has access, free access. Remember this. He's God. He doesn't ask permission. He has free access into everybody's heart and mind. God has full jurisdiction over our thought life. 
He has full jurisdiction over our emotions and our feelings and our desires and our passions. Full jurisdiction. They belong to God. He speaks all our language. He can speak to the 8-year-old. He can speak to the 88-year-old. He can take the message of salvation and break it down to a 6-year-old and keep it as simple as the Bible says so. Or if you want to get into theory and theology, he can make it as deep and vast as eternity itself. God knows everybody's language. Let not the day of visitation pass us by. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for every good and perfect gift, God, and thank you that you love us so much, God. And you want to rejoice with our salvation with the angels. You don't want to weep over us anymore, God. Let the weeping stop, Lord Jesus. Let the weeping over us stop. Let us hear the day of our salvation. Let us know it's the day of visitation that you're speaking to us. We can sense a sheer joy, almost an ecstasy, knowing that you love us and that you're calling us and you've chosen us and you're drawing us to yourself, Father God. And and you're working out all the situations in our life, Father God. We thank you, Father God, for the drawing power of the Holy Spirit. And we trust in you and not another. Yes, we trust in you and not another. Help us in our Christian life and our Christian witness. In Jesus' name, amen. Actually, we're going to get ready for communion. I just got the, (laughs) for my wife, I always forget that part. I got the the Wi-Fi's. You know what those are, right? That means I know exactly what she's saying when she doesn't say a word. All husbands know the wife's eyes. <laughs> well, let's get ready for communion. Listen, as we're getting prepared for communion, as the ushers are coming up, and as we partake, lift up the gratitude in your heart for what Christ has done. If you've never ever made a personal confession that you're a sinner who needs Christ, as you're taking the body and the blood, tell the Lord, thank you. Thank you for coming into my life and letting it be well with my soul. Ask him to forgive you. Ask him to give you the Holy Spirit. And he'll wipe away all your sins and everything.